It's June in the United States, which means it's time for Tulsa Tough. And now it's time for our yearly annual Tulsa Tough recap show. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for the full bevy of shows that's a part of this network. We are the internet's premier top tier, shall we say, collection of independent cycling content. And we are truly, genuinely, 100% independent cycling content. So go to Wide Angle Podium, become a subscriber and supporter of the network, and please financially support these shows. What are these shows? They're shows like this very one, or the Slow Ride Podcast, Cyclocross Radio, now covering mountain bike racing since 2021. The Grodio, one of our great friends, Amanda Nauman, puts on a top quality podcast about the pointy end of the gravel peloton and Nowhere Fast by Zach Schuster and company who talk about the world of unreal bikes or the world of trainer rides and Zwift and all of that fun stuff, the things that you do primarily during the winter or when you're time crunched. So go to WideAnglePodium.com and become a subscriber. We'll really, really appreciate it. Adam Mills, as always, here to help us break down everything that we are going to need to know about one of the fastest weekends in bike racing. Tulsa Tough. And we're doing that right now. So, Adam, we're two good friends, two old friends, basically here having a drink on a Tuesday night, uh, just kicking it and talking about bike racing. What is your drink of choice tonight? Uh, beer. Okay. Any variety of beer? It is Lost Abbey Carnival. Ooh. I have got a Brooklyn Cider House kind of dry all the way from the great state of New York with New York State apples. Sounds pretentious. It is. It fits in perfectly with me. This is our annual recap of everything that happened at Tulsa Tough, which means this will be one of the most popular I don't know, episodes of the year, because this is probably one of the most popular races of the year. You were there on the ground in Tulsa. I was watching it on TV. So let's start with this. The question on most people's minds, why is Tulsa so big? Why in the bike racing world do we go, let's go to Tulsa, like they say, let's go to Monaco when it comes down to F1 or let's go to the United Center when they're talking about basketball. Man, I I did the very first Tulsa Tough and I stayed in the promoter's old house that was going to be a rental house, I believe. And which was awesome. Um, the whole team stayed there is like camping in a real house. Um and it had an obscene amount of money to win. Uh, and then for the next few years, that obscene amount of money became more obscene amount of money. And and then I think from there, it just progressed. And it is what you see to this day. It's got three fantastic races. 
each race is like very challenging in its own right. <clears throat> They're not the same course at all. Uh, and it has two Fondos with it that have like hundreds of starters, like maybe even thousands. I don't know. It's a lot of people that just start the both the Fondos. And the whole Fondo thing is blowing up too uh, with Tulsa Tuck. So, you know, there's a lot, I think it's got a lot going for it. The whole, and the whole city gets behind the thing. Like the, the hotel we were staying at, the, uh, the, the, the concierge working on Thursday when we checked in was like, you're with the race. Yeah. I got the day off. I'm going down there. I've never seen a bike race before. I'm going down there. So if you can get that involved like that, that people that aren't even bike riders going to races to watch, like that's, that's pretty cool. Thursday night, and I don't know this uh, if this is new for 2023, but it's new to me. There was the ride with the pros race, or the ride with the pros ride, I guess. For some people, it probably was a race. You know, at Armed Forces, we had uh, Legion, Project Echelon in the past. Best Buddies had been there, come and do the Friday group ride. And we had fans watching like on the side of the road what was the vibe like for the the ride with the pros took some pictures because i was there there's man i I would say three to four hundred riders not a lot of like spectators there but a lot of bike riders just just whether you're fast or not it was pretty mellow um the last like bit they kind of just just went everyone went free for all um, I believe that was, see, it felt like it was some sort of local like group ride route at the end. And so everyone was like trying to grab KOMs. Um, I know I spent like 12 minutes uninterrupted at over 30 miles an hour, like a hundred people deep in this group ride at a group ride. I was like, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was pretty big. And then we got back and there was like barbecue and, you know, adult beverages, like non-adult beverages, like the Alpacin team was there handing out shampoo, which I got a bottle of. And my hair looks freaking amazing now because of it. All full of energy, too. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to we're going to go with it was a good time. So the racing, obviously, top top notch bike racing. But, but, but does it qualify? Let's talk post hoc. Does it qualify as the big races that we believe it is, even though they were only 65 minutes long? I believe, yes. I believe the level of competition was insanely high. Um, riding, riding the ride for the, for the, with the pros and looking at the, the people there and then looking at the, the Tulsa's tough. Their their timing system has a start list, which is awesome. Um, I'm going to look it up again as I'm sitting here. Uh, the The level of competition was probably the highest it's ever been there. Simply not saying like there are people that were amazing, more amazing than ever, um, like Michael Jordan of crit racing, but there is a lot of people pretty much on the level with the best riders, like physically, um, which we can get into. But I, I think as we get into um, more racing at this high level and more of them, the difference makers between like bro and schmo or pro and bro and schmo, they rhyme. See how what I did there? Um, 
Yeah, I did. I like it. Yeah, is going to be more of the uh, not no longer fitness based. So um, just like and, and again, it's the NBA finals just wrapped up and I've been listening to podcasts and watching all those games um, at the very, very high level of, of a professional sport. Like in cycling, the fitness is more or less equal across the board. Um, like in, in basketball in the NBA, all those guys are super quick. What what differentiates an NBA pro from someone who's barely in the league or not at all is it could simply be footwork. You waste a step and anyone can keep up with you and shut you down. Um, same with the same I, analogy with criterion racing is that I think it's it's really cool to see. I think it's moving beyond like, let's just get really fit. Um, but being really fit is like necessary for success, but it's not sufficient for success. So let's talk about night one, because I think we see a lot of that next level stuff happening in night one. I think night two at Tulsa Arts District, it was on full display in the men's race. So let's start with night one. Now, you and I have both done all of these races, but night one was a little bit different this year than it was in the past because they elongated the course. So the corner three to four was a block further down the road than it used to be, which is upsetting to me because there used to be that bar right there where everybody would hang over the outside, but now that's just on the inside of the course. Do you think that the change of the course by making it just a little bit longer on each end dramatically changed the dynamic of the race or was it just more time per lap? It did change the dynamic of the race some. Um, <clears throat> having uh, the two long, it's a it's a long figure eight instead of a short side and a long side now. Um, so you can't, it doesn't allow the peloton to bunch up as much. So before like turns one, two, the whole little side, turns one through four basically, we're all, if you did it right, you never really had to pedal, um, not that much at least. And the road was so darn wide that you could turn like five wide in those turns at 30 miles an hour. Um, but now like what makes an L course hard is you have, I think two or three quick turns and then a long straightaway and then two and then two quick turns and a long straightaway sort of thing. So the field may bunch up. It comes out of that uh, section of corners and goes really fast um, and then bunches up a little bit. But it creates uh, a dynamic that makes it more difficult and, and easier to hold position like relative in the peloton and harder to, to gain position. So you can't move up from the back in like one set of corners. Um, and that I, I believe that made the core of the race faster um, and also made it more safe. If you go back and watch those videos, like they're they're strung out the whole damn race. It's men and women. In the past, the this race has always come down to a field sprint. I'll use the word field sprint in quotations because it's not 25 wide all going for it at once. The concept of a field is a lot more narrowly defined. But we've all talked about the the very critical second to last corner being the corner that you need to win in order to have a chance to make the podium. Did that still operate as true this year? You needed to win that in order to be on the podium. 
uh, the second to last corner set you up for the last corner. So you had to make it through that one in order to have a chance for the last corner. But the sprint for the last corner was you had to have good position, if not a great position there. Um, okay. Definitely leading through that corner helps. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think from the last corner is exactly 200 meters on that day. I, I, if I remember the flags, right. Do you think that there's a group of human beings in this world who could legitimately break away in that race and stick it either on the men's or the women's side, or is this always going to be a field? Um, so the men's race and the women's, yeah, you have to have the right mix. And I think with the teams, with more depth of teams now, um, you got closer to permanent splits uh, throughout the race. I think on Friday, there was a couple splits in the field. They weren't, they weren't permanent, but they were threatening to be. Um, and then at the end of the race, usually in the last second to last or last lap, you'll see like a shearing of the, of the Peloton where someone halfway back is like, whatever, I can't get in the money. So I'm done pedaling hard. I think that happened this year with like four or five to go. Have both of the files up from a client um, from both days, from Friday last year and this year. And it was a complete one mile an hour faster this year, average. Uh, so let's look at the way that Legion of Los Angeles, obviously coming into this race, heavily favored. On the men's side, they had won this version of this night of Tulsa back since before COVID, you know, so clearly they're the favorites. And on the women's side with Kendall and Skyler, you know, supported by the, the remainder of the women who are a part of that squad, they had to be favored as well. But the two teams took dramatically different approaches to how they're doing it. I don't know what the right word is to describe the approach that the women take versus the approach that the men take. So I'm going to fumble here. But I'm going to say that the men took a much more active approach, whereas the women took a more passive. That's not to use the 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 not to be pejorative towards the women, but just to explain that the men on Legion go to the front. They lined up and they controlled the race from the front, whereas the women, when a break would go up the road, they would attach somebody to the back of it and sit as an anchor and not work on that. And then the field would just catch up to them because the women seem to be attacking in twos and threes, as opposed to in the men's field where they were attacking, you know, in fives and sixes. Uh, what do you, like, am I using the right words when I say passive and active? Should it be positive and negative? Or are there better words that don't carry such loaded language? I think the, the approaches are different and that from a strategic standpoint, it looks like Legion's loading the front because of the nature of the course and knowing how fast everyone is and how when you get back in the scrum, it's just difficult to move up. I mean, if you go back and look at the, if you took a photo of the last third of the Peloton or even the, yeah, the last third, it's the same people and they're in the same order. And, and pretty much the only riders that are changing field position are all in the first third of the race. So if you go further back than 
120 guys, you go up further back than 40 men. Like it's really tough to move back up. Um, but they feel like the men Legion men are keeping a minimum. They're, they're getting their assets to the front or asses or assets, whichever one you want to say. Um, and they're maintaining that field position by keeping together and keeping the pace high, like setting a minimum speed for the race, basically which ensures they don't get shuffled back. It also means they're not making big attacks and big efforts because that has an associated rest with it, which shuffles you back, right? The women aren't, don't, don't necessitate that for the Legion women. They also have help on Friday um, because it's an ACC race. So there are ACC points and dynamics up for that. And you saw like DNA doing a hell of a job helping out and keeping the entire race together for the, for the sprint point for the sprint Jersey, because they had the green Jersey. So there's not as much effort on Legion deciding to keep control like that. Cause they don't have to, because when it hits the fan, they look over and DNA is right next to them. It's like, well, that's your problem because you're defending a green Jersey. So they get a lot of help on Friday or they got a lot of help on Friday, whether or not they needed it. I don't think they really, they really needed it, but it did force the hand of other riders too. So I think they're operating under the similar, similar assumptions, but execution is totally different because it's totally different races. And, but man, they're really, both of them are really fun to watch though. So let's talk, we've talked for years now about how to, how teams can counter the Legion men's tactic. Uh, but we've never really count, talked about how to counter the Legion women's tactic and you saw, you know, a lot of aggression from DNA, from the NCL Knights team, from the NCL Disruptors. You saw a lot of going off the front, but each time they'd get that Legion rider attached to the back and frustration overwhelms or two people is not enough to keep going or whatever, it would always reset, you know. When you are faced with a team like Legion, who has a dominant sprinter in Kendall and Skyler, and Sam Schneider is an incredible sprinter too, you know, you find yourself with this passenger on the back of your breakaway. What do you do? You know, what are your options if you're Denver, Miami, Fount Cycling Guild, whoever it happens to be? Yeah, so I, I always like keeping team meetings really simple. Um, and for, for a lot of times, if you don't have, if you have a really skilled team, um, that's experienced, it's usually pretty easy or something of the effect of like, make the splits, step one, make the splits, um, step two, find a, find, make sure you have numbers in a breakaway that you're, that you like, and then you establish what those numbers are, um, so, for example, if the women's race average like 27 miles an hour or 26, we'll say, uh, then you need to figure out like, OK, how many will can this group of riders ride 26.1? And if the answer is yes, next question is, what are the matchups like here? And, and well, do we have numbers? And if the answer is yes, what are the matchups? Do we like the matchups we have? And that's where I think a lot of these um People give Legion a lot of credit and they deserve all of it. But if you have five riders up the road and you have one Legion uh, rider sitting on, you can only deal with one. And 
as well drilled and as well, like, uh, not trained, but as well educated, we'll say, in how savvy the Legion team is. When you have six, it's not like you have six. It's it's like you have six operating in in coordination. So they play like there's 12. But when you have one, you have one. So their, their biggest advantage is that they have numbers that all act together and as one unit. And that's really powerful. Um, I don't, I don't think DNA does it really well. I don't think anyone else does it near as well as those two teams do. Um, but if you get in a breakaway and you only have one, even if it's the, even if it's Skylar or just Kindle or just Sam, like you still only have one and you can always force a bunch of decisions to be made. If, if you have numbers in the break, you can force a bunch of decisions and eventually they're not going to make the most favorable one. And then you can start to capitalize on that. But that all takes like time to develop. But step one is you got to get after all those like gating criteria, you have to get that breakaway far enough from the Peloton that you have, you know, daylight to do all these things. And that's where it falls apart because they see, oh, well, there's a Legion rider sitting here and she's getting a free ride and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter if you're trying to win the race. Would you rather deal with one Kindle Ryan or a Kindle Ryan plus her five rider lead out? And I mean, I would always try and deal with one if you can. But but yeah, you have to drag it around. That's OK. Figure it out. Let's talk about that Kendall Ryan lead out because Friday night saw Kendall getting relegated in the lead out finale. You know, it was, as one could expect, a field sprint, meaning there was an elite group of women who were still left in contact through the figure eight. And you go into the second to last corner, the critical corner that we've talked about before. Sam Snyder was on the front. Kendall was, or it was actually Skyler was handing off to Sam. Sam was coming in and Kendall was on Sam's wheel. Olivia Cummins of DNA made a move to the right. Kendall checked over her right shoulder and then proceeded to go into Olivia's direction, shutting the door on her. Kendall was relegated for that, but she would end up being the first person across the line coming out of that final corner. Do you sitting here and in hindsight, having watched the videos numerous times, think that that was a clear cut example of deviating from the line or any kind of unsportsmanlike type of conduct that would have necessitated her being relegated. But what's the, what's the rule say? You, you wrote it up. You probably have it written down right in front of you. Read, read the rule again. No rider may make an abrupt motion so as to interfere with the forward progress of another rider, either intentionally or by accident. I will first like to say I'm really glad I'm not an official. Um, I think with the like pro- proliferation of just reckless riding in races um, that we've seen in the past, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, I'm I'm going to conjecture that USA Cycling sent down a, a message from from the, you know, the big King's chair in Colorado Springs and was like, this needs to stop, figure it out officials, how to make this stop. And it sucks to be made an example of. And I think Kendall was made an example of. Um, 
And I say that not because it wasn't the right call. I mean, if you go by the letters of the, of the rule book, it was, and it sucks. But like, if you apply that same rigor of, of to the men's race, go back and watch it again. 80% of that men's field is relegated. They're out of the race and the women's field too. Like you just, you're, you close the door in the last corner. I think if Kendall would never have looked and just jumped, it would be much harder to say it wasn't just a race move. But still, the fact of the matter is like that ha- happens all the time. And you can't just throw everyone out of a race for doing that. That said, it wasn't my call to make. And I'm, I'm really glad I'm not an official because I don't know what the right call is. It makes it really tough when no one gets touched to, to cry foul on that. I do know from people who were in the room during the team meeting that happened before. So, uh, you know, the, on the Thursday or whatever, you know, the team directors get together and have a meeting with the race officials and promoters that the concept of line deviation was addressed in that meeting. It was emphasized. Legion was present. Legion was discussing what had happened at Spartanburg with Robin Carpenter and with Ty Magner and that incident in the final lap. So obviously this is something that's fresh on all of our minds about changing your line dramatically. Do I know whether your position is correct that there was a, an example that was to be made here? I do know that the move that Kendall made was sharp. There was a deviation to the right and it was not insignificant in size because it crossed, you know, a lane of traffic. Um, But then again, somebody asked me shortly thereafter, well, if Kendall's move was deemed dangerous and risky, why was Justin awarded the win in his race when he deviated from a straight line too, just at a different point in time coming from behind somebody? I don't have a good answer for that, but you know, to wrap up Friday night for the women, you know, Olivia Cummins wins. Not unusual. She had been on the podium at Tulsa before. Good on her. Paula Munoz from the NCL Knights team fin- uh, finishes second and Sam-, Sam Schneider finishes in third. By the way, if if you're going to pick like six, five or six riders to be on a podium, a 3D podium, like those are all, those are all people that are on the list anyway. Like you're, you're, it's still an elite race and still an elite. It's not like anyone came out of nowhere there. They're all fantastic. There is a rider that is coming out of nowhere a little bit. She sneaks in to the results every single night. She's young. She's from Washington, D.C. She's on a first-year UCI team. Kat Sarkisov, Katya, Catherine Sarkisov, uh, on Sineska. She finishes, I think, fifth on this night and fifth the next night. She is a cyclocross national champ. Definitely somebody to watch moving forward. Always in the background. And at only 19, I think, maybe 18 years old, definitely somebody moving on up. But what we what we saw on Friday from the women was like team coordination, which was really interesting too. And that's what led to like that final. And those between the last two corners, it was either going to be Legion or DNA, the two most organized teams there. Maybe not the two like raw power best sprinters, but they were the two most organized, which is 
segueing into the men's race when we talk about that too. Is there in in team dynamics? I have to feel that there's a a broken arrow type play. Uh, you know, broken arrow is a reference to military tactic when things have gone wrong, or when things are not going where there's a danger and the danger is very close aboard. You bring in, you collapse around a small central area that's easily defensible, and you bring in every available resource from outside. It's like no joke. Bring it all in, artillery, air power, all of it. On the men's side, I am wondering if Legion called the broken arrow play. Because I know my team has it. I'm not going to use the word that we use to call out when things are in trouble. But even in Legion's absence of coordinated team effort, it sure looks like towards the end of that race that they had a coordinated plan that played out as well as one could in that circumstance. Maybe I haven't, I haven't talked to Justin about the audibles, but I kind of understand cause I've been in a couple of meetings with them, um, how the, the writers get a lot of leeway to make those decisions. Um, and if you look at the writers on that team, like who else would you trust to make the right decisions there? Um, I was, I was texting with Justin to get, make sure I got some facts right. Uh, and in 2021-2022-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2023-2
five or six people back. Ty did a full lap pull and made it to corner two before blowing up. And for the first time in years, it was a team not named Legion who was on the front in those closing laps. I spoke to Clever Martinez from NCL Knights, and he said that his mission was to get Alfredo to the the second corner to go in the front. That was his mission. And if you look back at the tape, that's exactly what happened. Clever goes through that corner first. Alfredo comes through that corner second. Clever's done. You know, Justin is still in fourth place by the time that they hit the final corner. But he had the power, the savviness, the I have no idea what to come out of that corner and just drill it. So the that getting Legion to burn through their riders is a product of a coordinated team response, the likes of we've never seen in Tulsa before. Um, for the first time, you weren't having like the solo rider just going for it all the time, just effectively doing nothing um, except chewing up clock for the most part. You had two, three riders, four riders at a time, eight person splits. And those are all things that need to be neutralized. You can't, you can't let two teammates get up the road. That's not a recipe for success, right? Um, The German team, the German national champion took off on like lap two for a prem lap and just rode the whole, a whole lap by himself, like looking calm. And I thought like, Oh, they're, they're trying to figure it out. And that, that team was actually pretty impressive. Um, I think they mismanaged some resources uh, burning too much too early, maybe. Um, but you saw these, like these teams, like butcher box gave it a, gave it a go a couple times. Um, Miami and then the other Miami team, I think how many Miami teams are there? So there's two teams. There's two. There's the blazers and Knights. Um, the eight American cycling tried, but you saw these like pretty stout efforts that take, take, a lot of resources to neutralize. And yeah, they were Legion was stuck without any lead out and Justin was all alone, but man, like that guy is just, you know, again, going back to my NBA analogy, like sometimes you just need a guy that can get you a bucket. Well, the thing is, is that Ty and the rest of them gave Justin the tools that he needed. You know, Justin's an exceptional sprinter but he needed fewer people around him, you know, and, and Ty by doing what he did with two to go, just absolutely burying himself and shedding people off the back who could have potentially been trouble. You know, that's, that is a team strategy, you know, whether you, you call it the a plan or the ZZ plan, you know, that's a team strategy. In, in the end, Justin does win Uh Dushan Kalaba from butcher box finishes in second and Danny Summerhill, whose name we're going to mention so many more times, finishes in third. And it was, like you said, with the women's race, that list right there, you know, those are the guys that you would expect to win that race, to be on that podium. There are no shocks there. That is a legit crew. Right. It's, it's, um, so I'm, I'm, by saying that I'm alluding, alluding, that's not the right word. Um, I'm trying to to like lean into a little bit of of, of teasing a a concept of of like you have 
your gamer. So Justin self called himself a gamer, which was awesome. Um, and then you have support and role players. And it's important, a, re- a well-drilled team has to understand that everyone has to buy into what their role is. Otherwise, you're just not, you can't have 50 chiefs or 50 cooks in the kitchen or whatever you want to, whatever analogy you want to call it. Um, you have to have people that are comfortable with their <laughs> role playing, with their role that they're, they're assigned to, at least for that day. But they can also change too. Um, you know, you saw, you saw Ty, maybe he's usually the last lead out guy, but at some point he made that audible on the fly. Like this just has to happen to maximize our team's chance now. And, and that was brilliant. Actually. Um, I, I can't think of very many people that would have been able to make that decision. So let's talk day two arts district. What is it about this course that makes it unique among the Tulsa tough courses? So I think, I think Friday is fast and technical because when you're turning that many times and the speed is like almost, I think it's 26 and a half for the women and 30 for the men average speed. Their fast laps are really fast on Friday. Um, Saturday is just as fast, if not faster. And there's a hill. It's just harder. And it is actually wide open except for the, the front stretch, which they narrowed the front stretch. And I think that's a good thing. Um, but it, the road's really wide and it gives you ample places to move up. Um, it comes at a cost cause the speed's really high. Uh, I think Saturday is the hardest of the days to control. Um, Sunday being more narrow in places and a much more severe course. It's almost easier to control than Saturday than any other day. Um, Friday is technical and fast, so it can be tough to control, but they're all, they're all different, which is why if you can win all three of them, um, in a year or even in your career, like that's a really big deal too. So with the uphill on Saturday, it comes in two parts, but the downhill is all one long downhill. So you go through corner one between corner one and two is a slight uphill to a flat. And then you turn up Sound Pony Hill, and that's where you gain the majority of your elevation. You know, when you look at the way that the women were racing it, it was attack up the hill. And then once they got a third of the way down the hill, it wasn't a lot of pedaling happening. Whereas in the men's race, coming down that hill was just as intense of an experience as going up. Because that bottom of the hill corner is important. Why? And it sets you up for the whole front straight where it's hard to pass. And you can only jam so many places on that first corner. Um, you know, and maybe the, the women are just racing with a little bit more tactical, um, tactical awareness as opposed to, I feel like the men just try and ride really fast and then hope it works. <laughs> I go, I mean, that happens sometimes, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really hard race. Um, there are numerous splits in both races that like, I'm honestly surprised like the, the split in the men's race didn't like, didn't work. That was in the first third of the race. The women had a bunch of small threatening moves that again, 
you know, there's one Legion woman on there. It's the same, same script as Friday, you know, rinse and repeat. They, they weren't, no one's willing to accept a Legion writer, but in reality, you have to accept a Legion writer. Um, I was thinking about uh, the example of the, the a writer that's always by themselves at nationals and has like the hardest time winning, um, like Corinne. Is it Lebecki? I don't think she's won. Check me on that. And if she had a team, it would be a totally different story. But she's always by herself, and it's really hard to race by herself. It actually is Lebecki with a B. There was an interesting moment in time during the course of the women's race where Harriet Owen from DNA got, you know, up the road by herself and she did a full lap by herself before she was caught. I spoke to her after the race and she was sad trombone upset about nobody coming with her. And, you know, like that's just the breaks, you know, but when you are a rider and you find yourself in that position where you attack and you're just like, am I not cool enough to have anybody come with me? What do you do? I mean, you've committed. Do you try to make it work? You know, do you go 75% and hope somebody comes up to you? Cause I feel like if you've gone to the effort of getting and establishing a gap, you shouldn't pull the plug. Yeah. You never, never give your advantage back for free. Um, know when there's no longer, uh, like diminishing returns or starting to, to creep in. You have to know when that starts to happen. Like when is your, when are you burning so many resources? This isn't worth it anymore. Um, and for her, like, yeah, I, I would, I would have given it a lap personally. If I could ever get off the front in a fast race, that'd be great. But, um, yeah, give it give it a lap, like see if anyone comes across, but then, then you have to realize like, well, what's her plan then? Right. Is she going to try and just ride really hard and not let the person come up? Or do you want help? And you wait for the person and you need to, cause she's trying to create something. So she's looking back, like thinking, okay, well, where, where's, where's someone coming and she just didn't get any help. And that's, that's lame. <laughs> what is, so, so what is the strategy? So like you're up the road, and you um, you see somebody coming across. You know, you, you check under the shoulder, you look around when you're going through a corner and you see somebody coming across uh, and you need the help because you're solo. When they get to you, do they immediately pull through? Do you allow them to rest? Like, what's the etiquette there? It's not how fast they come across. But if it's a long bridge, by the time they get to you, they're going to be pretty blown. So you still have to pull. So you should probably rest. Wait, wait a little bit and rest. Because when they get to you, they're going to need you to pull for half a lap. Period. Or, or a whole lap. Um, and then they can take a pull. But if, if the person gets there and they're blown, they're like, I need you to pull because I just, I just got here and I'm blown. And the person up the road says, well, I'm blown. I've been here already. Then it's just never going to work. And then everyone just wasted all their energy. <laughs> but, you know, someone you have to figure out how to how to keep people pedaling. And that's easier said than done sometimes. That's why half of those almost all those breakaways of like seven, eight people never work because people just don't want to ride hard. They don't have a compelling reason to just put their head down and go. What's the sweet spot 
you know, like the the number in a race like Arts District where a breakaway is conceivable, but probably not likely. You know, the number of men and women that you need to be in a group in order for it to have a legit shot. Three or four. No more than that. Five, uh, five is pushing it. I think Frankie talked about that too. Like five, five is pushing it. Three is kind of the right number. Four maybe. But, but they all have to be like paired evenly in ability too. So if someone's just way out of their league and they can't ever pull through, then that just ruins you, ruins the break. So let's, let's, you know, Legion ends up winning the women's race here pretty soundly. It is, uh, they got first, second, right? They got first and second. Yep. It was a, a Legion quasi sweep. So if a break of eight would have rolled with one Legion rider, then they only would have got first. Sam Snyder wins. Kendall gets second. Kendall celebrates as much as Sam does. And uh, Olivia Cummins comes in third from DNA. I do love the Sam Snyder celebration. Um, Snyder sisters not known for their two-handed celebrations uh, as much. And you could tell that Sam was a little nervous because as she went up with both of her arms, you could see her knees come together on that top tube to make sure that she kept steady. Because I think the most embarrassing thing that possibly can happen is for you to crash when it's a long angle camera lens shot. I feel like Sam's had enough practice with winning bike races. She she can figure it out. On the men's side, this was probably the hardest race I've ever seen. Saturday is the race. I think the Peloton sheared at like four or five to go. It was, yeah. it was obscenely hard starting right around that. And, and the one thing that I noticed and that you pointed out to me later is the significance of it later was about DCC, the German Alpecin team, you know, on Saturday they went in twos, whereas on, on Friday they were going in ones. So they attacked two riders together at the same time. So now you had a, you had a built in friend. They were, I thought all weekend, that's the team. Um, that's the team that, I guess I know Legion's playbook. That's the team because we've seen it a bunch. That's the team that they changed. They they were at Armed Forces too, and they they have changed what their approach every single race. And I I feel like, well, to me that's impressive because they know enough about how to race bikes to change their approach. Um, and they were trying different stuff, and they were super aggressive, and they were really trying. Um, they didn't win a race. Um, but it's not for lack of trying and it's not for lack of like doing a good job. They won at armed forces. They won Clarendon from uh, what started as a nine person or eight person breakaway and ended up with six. They did win out of that. And it was a 70 kilometer long breakaway. So they, they have substantial long endurance horsepower and the punchiness to accomplish it. I haven't seen them before there's vague memories in the back of my mind of another group of German track racers who came over in like 2012 or 13 and made a bunch of us here on the East coast look like fools. But I think that was a different team. Um, that being said, what I found impressive about Saturday is just the sheer aggression. And it was on repeat. And it was coordinated and it was 
tactical. You drew out people like Brandon Fury, Monk, in a breakaway. A sprinter getting into a breakaway is an unusual set of circumstances. So clearly getting at the front and being at the front and putting yourself in a position to get into a breakaway was was critical here because I think everybody realized that this was not going to end in the controlled Legion fashion that it had for the, the last two years. It really, yeah, it's, it's, no, even last year wasn't a controlled Legion fashion. It was, it was mayhem the last couple laps. Um, well, you remember the Tom Gibbons breakaway attempt last year that had some danger to it. Yeah, where was, where were those guys? Oh, oh they, they, they were at Riverton. Davy Dawson ended up winning in Riverton. I I I miss Davy. I expected to see him there. Yeah, he was out. He was out winning a bike race here in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, I think. So credit to him. Yeah, that. So there was a break on Saturday that ended up being like twenty, and you look and it had three or four German guys in it. It had three or four uh, Legion. It had every team. Butcher box who got chastised for it openly by the commentators um, or guys in that move too, which is, was amazing for that team. I, I expected more out of them for the weekend. Um, they'll get there. They have some really good talented riders, but, um, but yeah, so I thought everyone was there, but it just didn't work because sometimes when you get just a full split, 20 person split, everyone back in the Peloton is like, <laughs> that's it. That's the game. Let's stop and drink a beer now. Game race, race is over for us. But that didn't happen. The The Peloton kept racing. Um, and then it blew apart and then it came back together. And what I thought in hindsight, uh, which really impressed me watching it again before I before our call today, uh, Alec Cowan and Sam Boardman were in every single move. Sam Boardman. Remember that name, people. We'll get there later. Yeah, foreshadowing. Do you think that do you think that the effort that Legion had to put in on Friday night was showing on Saturday? Those guys, every all those riders are so good. They recover from that. Even looking at at like even well, even having a talk with Corey, he he didn't really give any digs on Friday until the second half of the race. So it seems like it's super fast. And it is, but at the front of that race, um, on, on all those days, when you're in the front, like the arrowhead of the peloton, you get like this professional courtesy. They ride tight, but not dangerous. And it's almost like a Zen state for those riders. They can, they can do that all day long, especially when it's around other professionals that they know and that they trust. There's no, there's no exceed exceptional danger other than the normal danger, <laughs> but, but they're really good at what they do. I found it amazingly interesting when I saw Corey pulling. Yes. And I thought that that was because I didn't see Justin at the time. He was a little bit further back in the field. But then I started seeing Corey coming to the front and I was just like. Man's taking his turns here. This is there is a there is a different factor that we need to consider. And and you do have to consider it because as the field started to shatter in the last two or three laps, Justin and Ty were again left isolated uh, against the entire field. And on the final lap up Sound Pony Hill, Justin came off 
you know, Ty's wheel, and Ty did not have it coming down the downhill. I mean, that's just aerodynamics and gravity. He wasn't going to keep the momentum going forward. You know, I love the new course layout with a slightly more narrow finishing stretch because it allowed this incredibly dramatic moment where the field disappeared through that bottom corner. And they were just blocked by the barriers and the fans. And the next thing you see is Danny Summerhill emerge full flight, full sprint on his way to taking the win. Danny Summerhill doesn't get enough positive race savvy commentary. I think he gets overlooked a lot and I don't know why. Cause he's, he's been around the game. I think he's been around so long and he doesn't have, he doesn't wear like a big gold chain and he's not super flashy. Um, but he's pretty darn consistent and he's a little bit older. And I think all those things combined with like, Oh, we just did what we expected him to do. And that, that kind of sucks for him. Cause that's a really cool win. <laughs> it's a really good win. Yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a great, great ride for him. Dario Raps comes in second from DCC and, um, Brian Gomez for the Knights comes in third again. If you wanted to name top five bike racers in the United States, those guys would probably be in your list of consideration. Let's talk Sunday. Crybaby Hill is legendary. Um, I don't know if it's legendary because it's a hard race or legendary because it's an incredible party or maybe all of the above. But what is it about this course that makes us get excited about it more than any other day, potentially. It's really hard to control. Um, unless you're just the fittest six riders out there, um, which we've seen that before we've seen more often. We've seen, we've seen teams try and control it and fall apart. Um, and they go with their like, what do we have left plan? And it's like, well, just put someone in the breakaway and we'll figure it out. Maybe. Um, this is where I want to talk about like team coordination. And I, I think the next level of team performance and cycling will be due to two things, film study, which would have helped a lot for Friday, Saturday and Sunday, um, which I don't think enough teams do that uh, as like, let's do a team zoom meeting and watch this race together thing and then talk about it. Um, and then having like working radios and a director on the ground, like ground, like ground control, who's able to call the shots and coordinate like team at like team efforts effectively. Um, I think when teams start to do that, we're going to see a lot better coordination and managing resources and, and, you know, leveraging different scenarios that are beneficial. And it, and it would really show in a race like River Parks at, on Crybaby Hill, where it it feels like for both the men and the women's team now, like women's races, they're just trying to make it hard and seeing who's good. It's with a course like that, with a hill that's that dynamic. And it's such a part of the race, like that's it. 
when you think about that race that like it's that hill you know obviously the the people at the the very pointy end are fit enough that the hill yeah it stings but it's it's still something that they can manage and i just don't know how deep into this field you have to go in order to basically find those people like from zero being the guy who gets dropped first up to Sam Boardman, who ends up winning the race. You know, how far up that list of 80 riders do you need to go before you get to people who can race the race and not just survive the race? The way it was raced this year, pretty high. If you go back and watch that again, definitely by the 15 minutes in, it's the same 15 or 20 people. The hill is hard. There's a dip on the backside. I don't know if the cameras show it. And then it goes up again. And then you turn right and then it goes up again. And that after that dip, everything after that is like leg shattering. So the brakes typically go there, not on Crybaby Hill. Because everyone's looking and the road's pretty narrow and there's a lot of shouting. And if you get too close to the edge, you get hit by beer. You know, it happens. Um, the finish stretch, that whole long straightaway road is almost... It feels like it's always a headwind. It was definitely a cross cross headwind this year. So there's a penalty for being, make this big effort to get off the front and you're solo or a group of two. Like now you get to plow into a headwind the whole way to that turn to go up the hill, which is just miserable. Um, but that's what you have to do to, to, to be in the breakaway. Now you've also pointed out the significance of the distance from that bottom corner to the finish line. Okay, what's the significance? Uh, I believe Sam sprinted for nine seconds, which is about the same as a 100-meter dash, only by time, which is why I think it's important to mention that. Uh, if you look at a 100-meter dash, I wrote an article about this too. Um, first 40, 40% of the, of the run, 30 to 40% are acceleration, and then you level out for speed, and then you just decelerate in the last like 20% of that, 10, nine seconds. Same thing happens in cycling, but if you look at cycling because you're going faster and you have like aerodynamics and all that stuff, if you sprint for less than 12 seconds, the odds of you getting past are poor. If everyone's roughly the same. If you sprint for 12 seconds, that's about where it crosses the 50-50. If you sprint for 14 seconds, it's like 70% someone comes around you. Unless you're exceptional, right? Like there's there's always exceptions. But that's a general trend. So this 20, 200 meters, and I, I did, I counted Sam like 1,001, 1,002. It wasn't scientific, but it was about a nine second long sprint. So first one around that corner wins. And I don't know if you watched it, but Sam was the best guy around that turn every single time. So he needed, he needed to lead, which he did. Sometimes you get nervous when you hit a corner and you're hitting a corner so much better than everybody else in the group. Like, you're like, why, why am I just, why have I dialed this in? It's kind of like when you do a multiple choice test in high school and you keep getting C as the answer. How many times can you get C as the answer before you start to freak out and think that you screwed up? And so, you know, watching Sam do what he did and being the, the, the master of that particular corner, I, I wonder if he had ever realized that he was doing that 
so well, or if it was just like something's going to give. I don't think he, I don't even think he thought about it. So let's, let's back up and talk about that breakaway. There were seven riders, I believe. Okay. There's one, one Legion, three Denver's disruptors, a Texas roadhouse. That's five German. So Denver had three. And to me, once that solidified as three out of seven or six, um, it was their race to lose as, as much as I wanted Sam to win it. Denver needed to figure out how to win with three riders. And I thought burning Ulysses that early and that often was going to, was going to come back to get him. And then Ulysses was out of there. And when, when they, when they were down the two, I was like, uh, your options with two riders are much less than when you have three. And to me, like that was, that was just, just gross misappropriation of resources on, on the Denver side. Um, and it was, had to be frustrating on their end. And I get that. Um, Sam, Sam played the master stroke and just never, he almost disappeared. Like they didn't talk about him. No one talked about him the whole time. Like he was never in the camera. He was always hiding. Like he made the split when he needed to, and it threatened to split. It was, it was brilliant. Um, you know, Denver could have leveraged Ulysses a lot better in my opinion. They still had, they still had some great sprinters. But. At the finish, there were five riders within five seconds of Sam. Obviously Sam wins. Noah Granigan gets second. Jonas Schmeiser from DCC gets third. And then you see some time splits. Spencer Movenzade from Miami Blazers and Fergus Arthur. Uh, obviously, Fergus has has really shined this year uh, coming from, I don't want to say obscurity, but he's definitely come from a position where not as many people were talking about him. So, but he's also the guy who was capable of doing a two-man effort at Benton Park last year at Gateway, you know, which is a really hard, hard race. And he he nailed it last year there, just falling half a lap short. So, like, these guys are all the guys that that have the endurance to go hard for an extended period of time. And then even when you look at the field split, the field sprint, you know, Ty, Clever, uh, Reinhardt, you know, Jens von Reinsberg, I love that name, the South African champion, Danny Summerhill is still in there. Like these are, these are your hitters. These are the guys that you would imagine would be there at the end. If, if you want to rank tough men with the three days of Tulsa tough, do you have to give extra points to the winners of the third day in the, in the pure, like in the pure, uh, we'll say spirit of if you're not first, you're last, I would say we don't have to go any further with that ranking than Sam. I mean, he rode the front on Friday. He was in every split on Saturday, every breakaway. And then he, he was there on Sunday. You know, the other part, about Sam on Sunday, 
I want to talk about was that his team, as they were no longer in the race, they were still spreading around the course so that Sam always had someone in his ear because those radios are all line of sight. And one radio from one spot can't give you coverage of the whole course. So I know Corey uh, was in a position to tell Sam when to sprint for the for the downhill, for the downhill corner. <laughs> so he didn't get like jumped by the by the German team, by Jonas Schmeiser. He was he was getting a run at him. So Sam beat him to the punch there. Um, but it's really important that he had teammates all around the course, like yelling in his ear all the time, which is awesome. And we had to do that in uh, a race that we did in West Virginia just to run operations for the race because the mountains were so terrible that uh, you you never had line of sight long enough to be able to, to communicate effectively from one part of the race to the next. Uh, I didn't know that about the guys from Legion, that even when they weren't in the race, they were still affecting the race. Right. Which is... Pretty darn cool. I mean, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume all the teams do that, but I don't know that for sure. On the on the women's side, Skyler, Sam, Olivia, this is like wash, rinse, repeat sort of thing. Like it's just they are just that good. They're amazing. What what was at, at some point was it? I mean, it was all like pandemic era, but I know Skyler's. Some podcasts said Skyler's on podium percentage was like 94%, which is like ridiculous. That would be this very podcast. I was borrowing, I was borrowing a, uh, a, a phraseology, or I don't know if I was borrowing the phraseology or if it was Michael Bodeheimer was using his own phraseology to reference her on podium percentage. And what was even more ridiculous was the win percentage. It was just like, yeah. So Skyler winning is, um, I hate to say it's Skyler, but it was kind of expected. It's It sucks, but <laughs> we've all been waiting to, to see her win one this weekend. Um, Sam is, I feel like Sam, Sam took a year or two off, and I feel like people don't, don't remember that Sam is a rock star in and of herself. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, Women raced really hard too. It was they were they were throwing they were swinging for the fences from the beginning, just like the men were. And I find it funny, ironic, interesting. Not sure what the right word is, but I was given a picture from Snowy Mountain of a baby crying uh, on Crybaby Hill. It was Sam's kid. Sam Snyder has got a two-year-old, I think child and the child was uh overtired and squirmy because it's hot and middle of the day and mom's racing when you know baby should be expecting its nap and was crying and i was just like this is this is epic this is perfect absolutely perfect but like i had said in the beginning fifth place here katherine sarkasov siniska cycling just behind paula munoz and in front of Erica Savetta. This is a this is a bike racer that you need to pay attention to. You know, she finished same time as Sam and Skylar and Olivia in a sprint. This is somebody that's going to be 
even better than she already is, which is to say she's already very good at such a very young age. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. Um, I didn't mention it before, but the uh, Legion women's squad has also had Skylar, Kendall, and Julen. I don't know how to say her name. A-O-L-Y-N. She's been in every... Those three have been in all... Uh, also Tufts, 21, 22, and 23. I did not know that. I mean, the Sky, the Schneider sisters run together. That's what we know. They're best when they're together. So that doesn't surprise me. Will 2024's Tulsa be even better? How can you make it better? I guess. And I, I let the cat out of the bag when I said that Racers are all getting faster and the, the fitness and ability of bike driving, like those are all going to be necessary for success, but not, not necessarily sufficient. Um, I think the, the things that are going to change the races are going to be just, just the directors on, on ground control, you know, getting the teams to be more coordinated and more systematic in what they're doing. You see, you see it in Europe racing a lot, um, but now if, if we're going to bring that to Criterion Racing, it's going to make the races a little bit faster, but a lot harder to just manhandle or, or just force force your agenda on other people at that point. Well, Adam, thanks so much for helping us break this whole thing down again. I uh, I'm already looking forward to 2024. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you there, Rob. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com for everything you need to know about the shows there. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. And special thanks to Adam Mills for coming on and teaching us everything we need to know about Tulsa Tough. We will be back again here next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation.